Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Carbonite. Keep your digital files safe this year. Protect your photos, music, and documents with automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Try it free without a credit card at Carbonite.com and use the offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. And by Audible.com, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at Audible.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. We love you like Kanye loves Kanye edition. It's Wednesday, February 17th, 2016. On today's show, Vinyl is the new HBO limited series about the carnival that was the music business in the 1970s. It comes from Martin Scorsese, and it stars Bobby Cannavale, Ray Romano, Andrew Dice Clay, Olivia Wilde, and many others. And then on an entirely different note, Brooklyn is the indie feature, the gentle indie feature about a young Irish girl emigrating to the United States in the early 1950s to the eponymous Brooklyn. It was a Sundance hit and a critical darling, and it now finds itself in a heated race for many Oscars we'll discuss. And finally, Kanye. We discussed the life of Pablo, his new record with Slate's resident Kanyeologist, Carl Wilson. Joining me today is Slate's resident Kimyeologist, Forrest Wickman. You're also a senior editor at Slate.com. Forrest, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hey, Steve. Hey, um, you're filling Julia Turner's uh, shoes today. How does that feel? I am not nearly as fashionably dressed, uh, (laughs) so I'm really failing there already. Okay, you failed already. All right, and um, of course, joining us as always is Slate.com's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, well, before we dig in, we do have a little bit of business. Dana, what do we got? Oh, I just wanted to tease our Slate Plus segment today. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you will, after this regular three-segment show, get to hear us talking with Will Remus, Slate's great tech writer, about Twitter and the changes coming to Twitter in the very near future and whether or not they will signal the death of Twitter, which I'm personally very curious about. So Will Remus for Slate Plus. Fantastic. All right. Digging right in. Vinyl is from executive producer Martin Scorsese. He also directed the first episode. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the Rabelaisian cocktail that was the record business in the 1970s, where it's an amazing decade when you think about it. We're talking about the birth of punk, of hip-hop, the decadent phase of uh, big-time Brit invasion rock and roll with Led Zeppelin, ABBA, the Osmonds, and of course, ACDC and Slade. The Miniseries itself is a smorgasbord of drugs, violence, and zingers. It stars Bobby Cannavale, Olivia Wilde, Ray Romano, and yes, the Dice. Dice, uh, Andrew Dice Clay, returning from a long exile. Um, he's quite good in it. In fact, let's listen to a clip. When I started in this business, rock and roll was defined like this. Two Jews in a guinea recording four Schwarzes on a single track. Now, it's changed so much, it's not even recognizable as the thing people used to be so afraid of. And that's not a judgment. I mean, I always tried to give the audience what they wanted, and in return, they made me ridiculously stinking fucking rich. Now, you might want to hate me for that, but before you do, remember this, you jealous prick. I earned my right to be hated. Forrest, um, this is quite a stew that Martin Scorsese has served up to us. It's getting, I think it's fair to say, a mixed reaction from critics. What was yours? Yeah, I was a little disappointed. I really was excited about this show. I love music history. I love reading music history books in my spare time. I even uh, kind of enjoy music biopics as a guilty pleasure. Uh, This one is 
a bit strange because, I mean, it's not a straightforward music biopic. You get a mix of real bands and sort of fake bands that are made to look very close to real bands. And and it just ends up feeling kind of, I think Willa Paskin in her uh, review for Slate used the word ersatz. And that's a little bit how I felt. And, and it, I think it's particularly, you know, I don't have a problem with um, inauthenticity and flash in a show. And uh, this this show has a lot of that, but it tries to mix that with a sort of obsession with authenticity and rock and roll and all the sweat on the floor. And it just came off kind of ridiculous to me, especially in the way it just kind of tries to cram everything that happened in New York City in the 70s into like one week um, mm-hmm. in, in 1973. <laughs> I think in the same night, well, no, it's not exactly the same night, but in roughly the same week, uh, the main character sees the New York Dolls. Uh, somehow he just like stumbles on the very first almost the first night that a, like any proto hip hop uh, concert was performed where you he kind of hears DJ Cool Herc uh, somewhere in the South Bronx. Uh, he sees a punk band that is like way too much like the Sex Pistols, but it's only 1973, so there's no Sex Pistols yet. Uh, mm-hmm. It just did not work for me. Uh, flash versus authenticity. Dana, where do you come out on this? Yeah, uh, I mean, I mix? sort of think that, that that clip we just played says it all. I feel like this is such boilerplate Scorsese, Terrence Winter territory. We haven't mentioned Terrence Winter, the mm-hmm. writer of many Sopranos episodes, but he also is a big mind and force behind this and wrote, I believe, at least the pilot, right, for us? Yeah, he's the showrunner for the show. I mean, it's it's Scorsese directing the pilot. It's Terrence and as an executive producer, and then it's Terrence Winter as the um, writer and showrunner, and then Mick Jagger is an executive producer. So it's like a really flashy few names that get top yeah, billing on this. Yeah, I think Mick this. Jagger even got a writing credit for the pilot. So I think Mick Jagger is a creative hmm. force behind this. And it's also worth mentioning that his son plays the the singer of the fake punk band right. that you mentioned. He seems to be supposed to be some sort of Johnny Rotten type I th- figure. I think so. Apparently he's based most closely on Richard Hell. And to be fair, uh, the <laughs> who Neon... Wrote, who wrote very negatively about this show, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend people go check out Richard, Richard Hell's very funny uh, review of this show. We'll link to that in our show page. Yeah. And he was in a band called the Neon Boys very, very early on that looks somewhat... I mean, I'll give the show more credit. Like, it, it, it shouldn't just be compared to the Sex Pistols. There were bands that were like the Sex Pistols that came a little earlier, but mm-hmm. uh, they were not very big at all. Let me jump in here and say that I loved it, and I'm sure that this means that I'm a middle-aged, over-the-hump white guy or something. Uh, Forrest, that jumped out at me, too. It's the entire history of American music um, from 1970 to 1980 in the span of three cab rides. Um, (laughs) That kind of condensation, like almost like dream condensation, to me didn't really work, but almost everything else did. First of all, I think Bobby Cannavale is a revelation in this. He's always done really good work. I think now he's doing great work. I just think he's a terrific American actor in the making. And uh, I really like Ray Romano in a supporting role. It's completely unexpected territory for him. I think he's mastered it already. Dice is terrific in this. It's it look, it's very carnivalesque. It's very mythologizing. I find it completely yummy and totally captivating. I'm going to watch it with total pleasure down to the very end of it. I'm amazed. I'm impressed. I'm glad one of us is is crazy about it. I mean, it, it, it does what it does with you know, undeniable virtuosity, but I feel like what it does is by now such familiar HBO Sunday night showtime fare. So it's got the Scorsese voiceover, right, which blissfully kicks out after the first 10 minutes or so. But that whole conceit of the voiceover that Cannavale gives and several scenes that happen later on just feel like they're lifted straight out of former Scorsese movies, right? I mean, the voiceover is everywhere. The Enderdice Clay character gets a scene that's very like Joe Pesci's scene in Goodfellas, where he's sort of trying to, you know, goad someone else into picking a fight with him so he can wreck damage on his person. I mean, like all... funny, like a clown scene, right? I right. have this exact same thing. Yeah, thought. I mean, I just feel like mm-hmm. there's so many yeah. familiar lifts from this world of gritty man dramas that I, I could barely get through it, honestly. There were moments that I was fast forwarding, like, we get it. They're doing drugs at a party. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we should maybe say that, Steve, you are not a Alone. I mean, Matt Zoller Seitz, writing for mm-hmm. New York Magazine, called this basically not only a great TV show and the first must-watch TV show of the year, but one of, he called the pilot, which is the length of a movie, it's about an hour and 50 minutes or something, he called it one of Scorsese's best films, which I 
that was not my experience. It came off as sort of overblown to me. But I, I don't know if you would agree with that, Steve. There's a cult of, of Scorsese such that auteurists will find a way to put a positive spin on anything he does. And I don't think this is total garbage TV, but it just doesn't feel like untrod, untrodden territory to me at all. I think if you were just to put all of this on paper and tell me that it starred the people that it starred, it was show run by, you know, the Sopranos veteran. It was directed and executive produced by Martin Scorsese, executive produced by Mick Jagger. I would have the reaction that you guys are having. And I'm not saying your reaction isn't sincere and totally authentic. I I can tell that it is. But and at first I thought it was going to be, you know, chicks and drugs and airplane rides and backstage with Led Zeppelin, just dull, dull, dull. And um, instead, it's guys sitting in a boardroom with Germans (laughs) (laughs) trying to buy their company. It's funny. I I mean, I was excited for the the like chicks and sex and drugs and rock and roll uh, show. I I when I saw all those names, I was really excited. I just Mm. yeah. I, 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 I guess I'm curious, Steve, what what do you think is the driving question or questions of the show? And I can name a couple, but I just found that the show seemed to be so overwhelmed by nostalgia mm-hmm. that those yeah. few driving questions kind of didn't have room to be explored. Like there was no room to explore those questions. I think that there's a balance here, Forrest, you put your finger on it. There's a balance here between heavily mythologized glamour and kind of Amer- American music business historiography that I find doesn't tip so far in the direction of the former that what is genuine about the latter can't really shine through. So my sense is that you are getting something. I mean, it's super condensed. It is mythologized and nostalgized, you know, up the yin yang. But nonetheless, I think you're you're getting some sense of what a crazy ass carnival it really was to try to run a creative business that was on no longer. I mean, that's what to me is most interesting, no longer on the cutting edge of, of, of popular music necessarily. I mean, there's a sense that his particular company, Cannavale's particular company may be running out of creative juice and where are you going to find it and I, I felt like that search to find some music scene where the light hasn't been shown on it yet and the money hasn't been wrung from it yet and that you know sort of was the punk scene very much so the punk scene in 1973 and then later you know the hip-hop scene starting in 78 79 and uh, as bad a decision as it might be to collapse those two things into one cab ride I still felt like I was seeing a piece of history unfold and um I, I appreciated that. Uh, and I think the performances are just fantastic. Can I say one more thing about the music on the show? I mean, I'm not sure if this had to do with rights issues, but there's a lot of, of essentially fake mock-ups of real pop songs, right? And there's all these songs that couldn't be reproduced, but they're finding a way to sort of communicate the essence of them on stage. And that's just something that's really hard to do. I mean, great pop hits are great pop hits for a reason. You can't just sort of sit down one day with Terrence Winter and come up with one, right? And it's sort of something that happens in a lot of artist biopics when the original work can't be used. But that, to me, significantly got in the way of the enjoyment that people would be reacting to these performances. Juno Temple, for example, who plays a young secretary who becomes kind of an A&R girl at the firm, at the music firm that Cannavale owns. She um, she attends this this punk performance with Mick Jagger's son up on stage, and it's supposed to be this revelatory thing, and it's kind of it's kind of tuneless and boring, as, as I think a lot of the music scenes are. True, but the audience in that scene is hating hating it. And she tells him later, you guys suck and have to become something better. And... Right, but I guess they're, they're not able to communicate the essence of whatever they have that she sees that her golden mm-hmm. ear is supposedly foraging for. Yeah, no, good point. All right, well, the show is vinyl. It's on HBO. It's courtesy of Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger and stars Bobby Cannavale. Opinions here are interestingly mixed. I'm sure they are out there as well. So come to Facebook.com. Uh, slash culture fest and tell us what you thought all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor dana what do we have steven this week the slate culture gab fest is sponsored by carbonite and i have to ask both of you this steve i know you can answer this have you ever lost everything on your computer because of some your mistake or someone else's mistake i've never had the like like crushing apocalyptic disaster. I've had little ones, but it certainly pushed, nudged me in the direction of our sponsor, believe me. So that time I spilled green tea on your computer, you were going to get rid of it anyway? It was all backed up? Make me feel better. my book 30% better. (laughs) Yeah, I forced you to go back to the drawing board. All to the good. 
Well, with the Carbonite Cloud backup, you can back up your photos, your documents, your books, your music, whatever else you have in your computer is backed up automatically to the cloud with this service. More than 1.5 million home and small business customers trust Carbonite. So start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. You don't need a credit card. Just enter the offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. And again, that's Carbonite.com offer code CULTURE. Okay, Stephen, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Brooklyn is a period drama about a young Irish woman who emigrates to the United States, landing in the Irish enclaves of Brooklyn, where she finds love only to return home and maybe find love there, too. Is this the story of an inexorably Irish lass or of the making of an American? No spoilers, but let's listen to a clip. I'm not Irish. You don't sound Irish. I need to make this clear. No part of me is Irish. I don't have Irish parents or grandparents or anything. I'm Italian, but my, my parents are anyway. So what were you doing at an Irish dance? Don't the Italians have dances? Yeah, and I wouldn't want to tell you the one. Maybe I have like Italians only. What does that mean? Oh, you know. No. Hands. Too many of them. I don't know. I guess it could seem that way if he was a girl. Listen. I want everything out in the open. I came to the Irish dance because I really like Irish girls. And I was the only one who would dance with you. Oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, so you danced with loads of others? Dana, before we dig in, I should say that the film's directed by John Crowley. It's adapted from a novel by uh, Colm Toybin, the renowned Irish novelist, and the screenplay is by Nick Hornby. That said, uh, a lot of critics really adore this film. What do you make of it? I mean, this is a very is a very throwback kind of movie. To, to see it on the uh, the list of, of Best Picture nominees for, for the Oscar, you just realize that, you know, I don't know if it's because of the broadening of that category or what, but it's it's sort of a different animal from anything else that's that's nominated this year, essentially because it's just so conventional. It's a very gentle, conventional love story that makes it sound boring, which it wasn't. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I really think it's just the force of Cheersha Ronan's personality and her performance that carries this movie. Otherwise, there's something... I don't know. There's something too too scrubbed clean about its its immigrant story. There's not. I mean, here I was just just ragging on vinyl for being too gritty. <laughs> this movie needs a little of that vinyl grit. It needs some Bobby Cannavale forehead sweat or something to to kind of <laughs> <laughs> legitimize its its nostalgia. But that said, um, I'm I'm completely glad I saw it. I bet it's based on a really good book. I wouldn't mind reading the book. But I, I don't. It, it feels a bit insubstantial as a uh, best picture candidate to me. Forrest, it's true. We are looking at the two faces of nostalgia here between vinyl and Brooklyn. What do you make of this iteration? Yeah, I'm sad to say I somewhat agree with Dana, but I want to preface all of my disappointment with this movie by saying I really liked this movie. I heard about it at Sundance, but didn't get to see it there. Waited many months, you know, saw it way back in November. At that point, the hype had reached really high levels. And so I went and saw this movie and it was, I thought, oh man, you know, what a handsome movie, what a charming movie, what a good movie about the ambivalence an immigrant uh, might feel upon assimilating into a new country or, or choosing whether to do that or to maintain her own identity. Nonetheless, I, you know, I don't know if this movie stands up that well when it's kind of put into the big leagues of the best picture race. And specifically, uh, Dana, for the reason that you cited, which is that this movie is so art directed to be so kind of clean and neat and have all the lighting be perfect and so on that at times I actually wondered whether certain scenes were CGI and couldn't tell or not. Mm-hmm. And in some ways that could be a compliment. I mean, it did not have a huge budget. So You mean whether on, the period look was was digitally created? Yeah, for example, when she's on the boat. I, I, I think that scene was CGI, but uh, it, it, regardless of whether it was CGI or not, it had that kind of too clean, slightly fake... Uh, basically stagey quality that a lot of scenes with CGI have. And and it might be worth noting that the director who has done some pretty uh, acclaimed movies in the UK um, and Ireland is kind of primarily a theater director. And a lot of this movie, I guess I, I would say I quite liked this movie as a movie about identity and an immigrant choosing between two identities. I did not like it 
as much, though I still found it charming, as a romance about choosing between two boys who are totally dreamy but came off mm-hmm. as like totally yeah. fake and like not having a shred of self-interest in them. <laughs> so you don't know if you're team Domhnall Gleeson or team Yeah, Emery right, Cohen. right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like a team Jim, team Jim. I mean, as a movie about Team Ireland versus Team America, I loved it. But as Team Jim versus Team Tony, <laughs> I don't know. I agree. The boys were heavily idealized, and there's there are very few dark shadows of any depth cast over the storytelling here. I will say that the entire movie, in some ways, plays out on her face. You know, her face is just absolutely at the center of almost every shot of the film. She is luminous. She's terrific in the movie. She is the best thing about it. And to the degree that it works, I think it's because of her and her performance, which is by necessity subtle. It's not an overwritten part. None of the movies overdone in any way whatsoever. I also should add, I, I love almost everything cinematic that Nick Hornby has ever touched. This will not go down as one of my favorite of his efforts. I think he he brought an enormous amount of restraint and sincerity to the project. I just didn't feel the weight of her choice in part because both of the young men are so idealized. You didn't sense what part of her is by necessity going to die in making the choice. Um, At least I didn't quite powerfully. And I think for a movie like this to hit you where you live, it's sort of, you you kind of have to feel like there are two possible, you know, Ailish's, that's, I believe her name in, in the film. And one of them has to be killed by the other in order for any future to happen. And I didn't feel that burden in the course of the movie. That said, it's a very dignified film in every way. I mean, it's beautifully directed. It's uh, beautifully acted. Gorgeous to look at. If a little CGI, I agree, Forrest. I was very surprised when I ran home to Wikipedia after watching the film to discover that it received a standing ovation at Sundance, but also it was gone on for a movie that was made on a you know pretty thin dime, went on to make $40 million, I believe. What accounts for that, you think? That, I was going to ask Forrest why he thought it was such a sensation at Sundance. Is it because of the relative novelty of there being a movie that's sort of sweet and low stakes and nobody nobody gets their head bashed in with a Grammy statue? I don't know. I have a thing with Sundance where I just feel like lots, most even, movies that come out of Sundance are overhyped. So many great movies come out of Sundance. Some of them lived up live up to the hype. But I think that the writers who go to cover Sundance, the economy of, of words kind of like the economy for writing out of Sundance incentivizes them to rave about this, this movie that no one else will have seen yet and won't see for several months and say, oh, man, everybody's going to have to see this movie. And in fact, I mean, I'm not the only person to say this. There was a pretty funny kind of meme that happened at Sundance this year where a bunch of critics decided to make up a fake movie and then just like sing the praises of it on Twitter until it even got kind of picked up by some media outlets or something. But anyway, it was a it was a spoof of the Sundance hype cycle that I found very funny and and I thought this movie was really good and I think it's probably making 40 million dollars cuz it's a really charming romance and there's nothing wrong with going to see a totally charming romance. I'm glad I saw it. Right, but since the box office returns seem to belie the, the, the Sundance hype, I mean, in other words, the Sundance hype was actually borne out in terms of people who wanted to pay to see this movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have an explanation for that, for that phenomenon. I mean, I'm certainly familiar with the overhyped indie that then right. flops at the box office, but why did this one not? I mean, it could be the cross-generational appeal. This seems like it's a movie that could appeal to older people. It's clean, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's not... It's not violent. It does occupy this vanishing niche, certainly in the world of prestige dramas, you know, Oscar-bound dramas. But I don't know. I'm not sure that I can account for it. And I hope that because of it, more people get to know Shirsha Ronan's work and she gets some more interesting roles to play. Because since she was a child, since I first saw her in Atonement as a child actress, I've been amazed by Shirsha Ronan. And really, you're right, Steve. It is her face that carries it. And it could almost be a silent movie. And you just still understand every emotion. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. She's wonderful in it. Um, before we uh, exit the segment, let's uh, let's hear a little um, Oscar uh, handicapping. What do you think uh, the chances are for the actress and for the film, Forrest? Yeah, 
I think this movie is a pretty long shot to win Best Picture. I think it has um, it. Most of the Oscars pundits would say it has has basically no shot. Even though really no one knows what's going to win Best Picture, but most people think it's between Spotlight, The Big Short, The Revenant. Most people would even put something like Mad Max Fury Road before this movie. But Saoirse Ronan, I agree very deservedly, has a good shot at um, Best Actress, but she will have to overcome Brie Larson in Room, who, as much as I loved Saoirse Ronan in this movie, uh, I would still love to see Brie Larson win. Mm. Dana, where do you shake out on all this? Yeah, I mean, as far as prognostication, don't ask me. (laughs) I'm not really up on the Oscar race this year in terms of stats, but yeah, I think I'm still Team Brie. She had really, I think, a harder job cut out for her in Room. You know, Shusha Ronan is wonderful in, in Brooklyn, but I don't think she has to explore. I mean, that's part of the problem with the movie, right? She doesn't have to explore those lower depths the way Larson does mm-hmm. in that role. All right. Well, the movie is Brooklyn. It's directed by John Crowley. It's from a screenplay by Nick Hornby, adapted from the Colton Toy Bean novel. It stars Shusha Ronan, an Oscar contender. Tell us what you thought of it. Was it too uh, mild, or did you find it uh, deeply moving and beautifully observed? Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and um, tip us off. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? Steve, our second sponsor this week is Audible.com, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks. When we first started having ads for them, I think they were at 100,000. They're growing fast. And you can sign up as an Audible listener and get a book credit every month for a low monthly fee. I've been doing this for years, and I couldn't live without Audible. You can download your choices on your iPhone, your Android device, your Kindle, your iPod, anywhere you want. And uh, I happen to have just recently come in for my new book of the month. It's the 11th of every month that my Audible renews. And my daughter and I basically race to the (laughs) screen to see who gets the book, the free book that month. And this month I downloaded Bessie, uh, which is a biography of Bessie Smith by Chris Albertson. It's a book I've been wanting to read for a long time. It's sort of a a well-known tome of jazz literature, but it is a brick. It's very large. And uh, since I'm researching that period right now, it seemed like maybe listening to Bessie as I walk the dog would be the way to go. It's a really, really great... um, thoroughly researched biography about an incredible singer whose life before that had been really sort of mythologized and the myths repeated over and over again. And Chris Albertson's sort of the first biographer to really dig down into primary documents and interview people who knew her and come up with a really great solid biography of Bessie Smith. So that and 180,000 other choices await you on Audible. You can get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial today if you sign up at audible.com slash culture. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right, moving on. We're joined now by Carl Wilson, the music critic of Slate, to talk about the latest album from Kanye West. Carl, let me introduce you by way of saying that you had heard significant fragments of this album and were waxing somewhat tentative about it. Then you heard the final version of it, and you wrote the following. You said, but then, sisterin and brethren, I downloaded and played the finished, tracked out and sequenced and mastered version of The Life of Pablo, and I was struck down, and I was bathed in oral light. It didn't quite rank as a Damascene moment. It sounds like it did, but pardon my blaspheming tongue. God damn. Carl, what do you mean by those words? Well, you know, it's it's not an unusual experience these days in the various ways that albums leak and dribble and drabble across our borders before they're sort of fully ripe. But in this case, there felt like an incredible difference between getting a sort of fragmentary version of The Life of Pablo, Kanye West's new album, and actually hearing it in its finished form and being able to sort of put it on the stereo. And in many ways, it felt like Kanye was kind of doing this dance with us to keep that version of it away from us. And so I think there were so many distractions around the phenomenon of the album coming out. There was this, you know, live simulcast stadium event that people were attending, and there were, you know, a thousand tweets, and there were all of the kinds of bits of details of collaborators and other other information leaking across. But the actual oral experience itself of the album very easily kind of got lost in in that shuffle, and, and I was shocked in finally hearing what, you know, even now is not quite acknowledged as a finished product, that to be reminded that there's that you're in the hands of this kind of incredible master of the recording studio and, and the kinds of things that he can do. 
and the things that when you're finally allowed to hear these album these songs the way they're meant presumably to be that that they can be quite as beautiful as they are despite all of all, all of the distractions mm. pick out a track that we can listen to and that will give all of us listeners included something to chew on so i mean if you listen to the the opening track which was performed this weekend on Saturday Night Live as well, um, Ultralight Beam. There's this gospel choir effect that really sort of sets the album up thematically and is one of the ways that that people got their first taste of this who weren't jumping through all the hoops that Kanye had made you go through to hear it. You know we need it. You know we need it. No, I need you now. Pray for Paris, pray for the parents. This is a God dream. This is a God dream. This is a God dream. We on an ultra light beam. We on an ultra light beam. This is a God dream. This is a God dream. This is everything. That was the version of Ultralight Beam, which I think is probably the best song on the album that I heard playing in a movie theater in Florida in the simulcast, which I I guess at least if we're to take title and Def Jam for their word, 20 million people watched, which is like, uh, or at least tried to watch, which is like Sunday night football numbers, which is pretty crazy. I mean, it's about as many people as probably watched the Grammys. And it was, I don't know, stage eight of this uh, 40-step rollout. Uh, the Kanye added eight more tracks on in the next two days, which was unusual, but not entirely unprecedented from him. Sort of legendarily, when he recorded his last album, Jesus, he recorded a a bunch of the final verses from the album at the last minute, telling Rick Rubin that he would drop 50 points in the fourth quarter or something, so he didn't need to worry. So... Even now, it's not that easy to listen to this album. Dana, I think you were a little frustrated by that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, my feeling about this whole extended rollout, we decided last week we would talk about the new Kanye album. So great. So I spent the whole weekend trying to figure out when it was going to be released so I could listen to it, right? And by the end of the weekend, I was sort of like, kiss my ass, Kanye. I have to sign up for a whole new, what? You have to give your credit card number, sign up for this new streaming service called Tidal. There were tons of glitches. It was really hard to listen to it. I just sort of felt like, you know, go finish your album and release it when it's done. Yeah, I have uh, very mixed feelings about that. I mean, I really don't like Tidal very much as a piece of software and as like a user interface and just as uh, it's not like their servers can't always keep up with demand. That's a well, apparently, recurring problem Well, apparently thousands of people paid for this album and never got it. That didn't happen to me, but I did have to go through major cumbersome sign-in issues. Right. And I think that might be the one thing that was kind of Kanye's fault because he said he was going to put it on sale and then he was like, no, 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 we're just going to stream it for a while until I finish the album. I I should say I really respect and I'm very interested in Tidal as a a sort of more activist or political project. I mean, it started out as, you know, we're going to go up against Apple Music and Spotify and I think has kind of subtly emerged, or I'm sorry, evolved into... Uh, kind of an activist project where a, it's uh, it's Jay-Z's project and he and a bunch of other predominantly black artists are debuting their music there as a way to kind of try to take ownership back of their music. And, you know, we just finished talking about vinyl, which is all about the history of black artists being exploited because they don't have control over their music. So I, I really respect that project. I just hope they get their software more online. We, we should talk about the um, what the, like the actual content of this album. Carl, you talked a lot in your review about the uh, way that this album kind of plays um, reverence and gospel against just kind of like f- foul-mouthed irreverence and the profane. How did that work for you on this? Well, I think that one of the things that that rollout effective was that at first it was just fragments of lyrics and moments that made an impression on people and that started to sort of spread by word of mouth. And you got the impression that it was, in lots of ways, most of Kanye's recent albums have been kind of a series of outrages and, and similar to his kind of public reputation for giving offense and for self-aggrandizement and that kind of thing. And it, and it really got 
far away from the sense of what the music does and the way that those moments operate within the context of what he's doing. And that's part of what he's doing, too. I mean, he is this provocateur, but there is this deep relationship that a lot of the album has to gospel music and to other forms of music, too. Like, I mean, the, the frame of reference is just incredibly wide, and the, the amount of fusion that's happening between forms of music across it is really quite incredible. And all of these like fragmentary media moments that have been happening, you know, the, the most notorious which of which was around his remarks about Taylor Swift, which came back around last night within the Grammys. Those things become the headlines, and the, and the fact that he's actually kind of this this virtuoso of bringing all of music history into a 21st century context gets lost and and things seem incredibly different in that context to me and seem and the meaning of this kind of clowning that he does alongside this kind of sacred level of what he was doing with the music felt very different to experience when you get a little closer to the album i'm curious what you guys thought of the Carl, you mentioned the Taylor Swift line, which I guess we should say what it is for anybody who's been under a rock and hasn't heard it. Maybe we should play what it is. Swiss only let the beat rock. Southside niggas that know me best. I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. Why? I made that bitch famous. God damn. I made that bitch famous. I mean, I'm really curious what you guys thought. I find myself being in the position at, at Slate, and I, I even have somehow developed a reputation on Slate podcasts for being like the guy who will defend Taylor Swift in all all cases. I was not that offended by this, and I thought it was... I mean, of course, I'm not the person who would be offended, but I do wonder whether the degree of outrage surrounding that line has a lot to do with a kind of culture clash where... Kanye, for example, has said that the word bitch means something different in hip hop, which I think is somewhat true. Uh, I mean, it's definitely true that it has different meanings. I'm not saying that it's not um, ever negative. But I don't know, Dana, were you uh, horrified by this line? Did you laugh at it? When it played at our theater, everyone just laughed and no one was you know, throwing popcorn at the screen. I mean, I guess if, if it were actually the case that he cleared the whole thing with Taylor Swift and she said, ha ha, fine, go with it. But isn't that something that he claimed and then her press people came out and said, wait, that never happened at all. In fact, he never ran these lyrics by her. Yeah, it's it's very much a he said, he, she said. Carl, you made a great point in your review. You should maybe talk about kind of what parts of this line Taylor is reacting to seemingly. Well, my impression of the sort of he said, she said that happened is that her team definitely denies that he was given clearance for it, and he claims that they had an hour-long conversation. And I kind of wonder whether both could have happened, because I I feel like it's quite possible that Taylor could have had a sense of humor about the sex line, but what was very clear in her um, album of the year acceptance of speech in the Grammys the other night is that she was not okay with the idea that Kanye made her famous. And as the first woman to win Album of the Year at the Grammys twice, I want to say to all the young women out there, there are going to be people along the way who will try to undercut your success or take credit for your accomplishments or your fame. But if you just focus on the work and you don't let those people sidetrack you, someday when you get where you're going, you'll look around and you will know that it was you and the people who love you who put you there. And that will be the greatest feeling in the world. Thank you for this moment. Yeah, I was going to say, the more offensive thing is not I could have sex with her someday, which you can laugh off as like that's Kanye's braggadocio, but I made that bitch famous. I So... Okay, uh, you're offended by this. I'm not really. I like. I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. She was what must have been like multi platinum selling by the time that moment happened. Nonetheless, I didn't know that much about Taylor Swift before that happened. She entered a whole new level of fame, and so yeah, he's like kind of trolling a little bit. But I think there's the the statement is both true and not. The thing I think is that it also worked the other way around, right? Like there are sort of 
separate sectors of the population that crossed for both of them at that point. I think there were, you know, a reasonable number of the multitudes of TD boppers in the world who had no idea who Kanye was before he insulted Taylor. So, I, you know, I think it was kind of a mutual benefit if we want to look at that way at all. But I mean, if I could just if I can just jump, I mean, into the Kanye love fest for a moment. Okay, I know we're not supposed to be talking about the hype around the album, even though Kanye did nothing but make us talk about it for the last four days. We're supposed to be talking about the audible artifact itself. But can I just say there's many instances of misogyny on this album, not just the Taylor Swift line. Okay, and uh, and Kanye just tweeted Bill Cosby innocent in capital letters with five exclamation points after it. I'm sorry, but the public persona of Kanye is so blended with me to listening to his music that it, it. he kind of does make my flesh crawl in some ways. The stuff he says about women creeps me out. That tweet is utterly indefensible, in my opinion. And that moment at the end of the, I thought, quite beautiful performance of Ultralight Beam at Saturday Night, on Saturday Night Live, the fact that it ended with him prostrating himself on the ground in front of the gospel singers and then immediately leaping up and saying, go to KanyeWest.com, my album's about to drop, which it wasn't even yet. I don't know. I mean, it, as, as I said earlier, I'm sort of feeling like, kiss my ass, Kanye. <laughs> Team Dana. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, the Bill Cosby tweet, I think, is probably the dumbest thing and most reprehensible thing he's ever said. And even if it's a performance, that that would not excuse it because What's it some performing? degree of people are are going to take it seriously. Well, I mean, I, there are like various theories, but I think they're not even worth repeating. And I think most of them are kind of people in in denial, um, in the same way he seems to be in in denial. Um, yeah, and let me and let me just hasten to say that I'm not claiming that this is all like a clever, performative, deliberate thing. I think that there's a level of transparency and confusion that happens in this in this sort of 360 degree view that we're getting of somebody of a figure like this that we just didn't have. You know, if you imagine equivalent figures in the 60s or the 40s or the 30s who could have destroyed themselves in this kind of way if the, if if their every thought had been available to their audiences you know it's it's actually a, i think a specific phenomenon of now and not and not all a, a you know a, an elegant term of art at all yeah i mean just to i think it's i think it's really unclear to what extent this is uh, a performance, and I think it's totally a mix. Uh, just to give a little bit of kind of more concrete evidence as to why we know that he's at least sometimes performing, you know, A, uh, he often uses fiction on his albums, uh, particularly, for example, if you take something like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which is his kind of like mega acclaim, mega acclaimed album from 2010, it's explicitly set up as a fantasy, and then on the album he says, he tells these stories using the first person that are about like having a kid and having to pay paternity payments for this kid and then running from the police and being chased up and down these buildings and stuff that are clearly fiction. Like, if that happened, we would know about it from TMZ or whatever. And then the other thing, that you know, Kanye is very explicitly playing with the idea of being crazy. On the album, he says something like, name one, name one genius that ain't crazy. And uh, I was struck while hearing that line. It reminded me of one of these kind of speeches they're always called rants that he gave at the end of his last tour so kind of like one of the big statements he made about when where he was going next where he talked about how his definition of crazy was doing something that no one had ever thought to do before or saying something that no one had ever said before and that and then he just walked off the stage repeating over and over again so i'm just going to get crazier and crazier and crazier and i think like that is Part of what makes Kanye horrible is he's like willing to say anything and it is part of what makes him great because he will just take these enormous risks and try these insane things, colliding all these things that are not supposed to collide. And and I just like can't stop looking away. <laughs> can't stop looking away or can't stop looking. Yeah, I mean I, I guess it's it's a mix of both. <laughs> all right. Well we'll we'll let the um We'll let the Freudian slip end the segment. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. As always, just an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Well, the record is called The Life of Pablo. It's from, you may have heard of him, Kanye West. I live under the rock, so I needed to be told most of what we just talked about. Maybe you do too or or not. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what you think of the, of the record. All right. Moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
I have a really cool interactive website to endorse this week, and I want to thank my friend Gerardo for sending me to this website. I don't think he listens to our show, but if you are, thanks, Gerardo. This is awesome. So um, this year is the 500th anniversary of the death of Hieronymus Bosch, the great Netherlandish painter of weird, disturbing uh, panoramas of, of pleasure and torture and pain. Um, I think everybody knows and loves Hieronymus Bosch, right? In honor of his 500th anniversary of his death, there's this huge exhibit in the Netherlands of, of all of his paintings, or as many as they could get. But one very, very famous painting that they couldn't get because the Prado would not let it go was the Garden of Earthly Delights, maybe his most famous painting. But as a compensation for not actually having the Garden of Earthly Delights in the exhibit, they've made this great interactive page where you can not only move around the painting freely, it's this huge triptych, right? It's really, really giant with tons of little figures doing strange sexual and excretory things to each other. And uh, you can travel through the painting and learn about each of the figures. You can also listen to a great audio tour that talks you through the history of the painting. And uh, it's really just beautiful resolution. It's If you've got a big, nice screen to look at it on, you can spend a long time within this painting, as I did yesterday with my 10-year-old, perhaps to the detriment of her future mental health. But she loves Hieronymus Bosch. How can you not love a guy who paints you know, bird-headed people laying eggs that catch fire. I mean, there's nothing that this guy's imagination has not explored. How age-appropriate is that centuries-old painting? <laughs> I really don't remember. I mean, it's... Well, I mean, there's a lot of, like, naked people doing crazy stuff, but it's it's so crazy that, you know, I think to her it's more like... Um, how would you how would you describe it? I don't know. Maybe maybe it will end up disturbing here in some future time. But to her, it's more like a crazy cartoon. Like check out what this guy's doing, you know. And uh, and it was just a lot of fun traveling through the painting with her. It's not at all for children. Although apparently, if you speak Dutch, there is a narrative that is especially for children in Dutch. The one that we listened to was in English. But super super well done. So we'll put a. I cannot even pronounce the Dutch word of the name of the website, but we will put a link to it on our show page. That sounds amazing. I am immediately going to um, send that link to my older daughter, thirteen, my age-appropriate 13-year-old daughter. Um, oh, a better parent for- than I, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that would slip by unnoticed. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, Forrest, what do you have? I would like to endorse uh, going to see the Oscar-nominated animated shorts. I don't think anybody's ever endorsed this on here. Have you guys done this? I usually get them get links to them online to watch. I'm going to specifically endorse, even for Dana Stevens, going to the movie theater to see the Oscar nominated animated shorts. It's a great it's like a great sort of old school movie experience, partly because for the most part, almost no one will know anything about the shorts or at least anything other than like the Pixar short going into them. And so you just kind of sit there and let the next thing come up and and you have no idea what's coming. Um, and also it's kind of a great communal experience where everyone collectively kind of rates the shorts as they play. I've even specifically gone with groups of friends and had everyone sh- like hold up a, a number of fingers out of 10, like as a rating that they would give the movie. So I give this movie nine out of 10 or, or this short nine out of 10. What was your favorite of six the shorts? Out of 10. So this year, so this year, the, sh- the shorts that I loved were slightly more predictable. Usually I have kind of discoveries that I never saw coming. My two favorites this year had actually already seen, though there's other really good ones. My two favorites were um, Pixar's uh, Sanjay's Super Team, which played before The Good Dinosaur, I think. And and sort of apropos of um, Brooklyn, it's uh, it's basically a story about assimilation or like syncretism where it's about a young Indian boy who loves his superheroes being dragged uh, into a um, ritual with a Hindu shrine with his with his father. Um, I hope those are the right terms. And uh, and it's about uh, kind of his struggle to realize his own identity as a sort of, you know, hyphenated Indian American. So it's really great. And there's also the new Don Hertzfeld short is one of the other movies that's up for it. I think or one of the other shorts. The World of Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've that, seen it, right, Dana? Yeah, that's the one I'm rooting for for the Oscar. I think it's incredible. Yeah, Hertzfeld is one of my favorite animators, and this is one of his best shorts, I think. I, I don't think it's my favorite thing he's ever done, but I would love to see him win. I mean, not to discourage people from going and seeing him on the big screen, but I think The World of Tomorrow is available streaming yeah. now through various streaming services, and it's one of the best animated shorts I've seen in years. I mean, it's like a, a beautiful little work of, of philosophy kind of bundled into a cartoon, a 17-minute cartoon. Mm. Uh, so yes, going to see the Oscar-nominated animated shorts. Fantastic. Um, all right, so this week I'm going to endorse uh, a listener um, turned me on to a band called The Horses Ha, H-A. Um, it's, uh, it features one of the women from Freakwater, Janet Bean, 
and uh, a guitarist and singer, wonderfully talented guy named James Elkington. Um, I love their music. I'm digging it so much. But the um, main endorsement this week is um, I had the rarest experience, Dana. I'm very curious to know how often this happens to you, if ever, where you see a movie and you are pretty definite in your response to it. You're not completely flummoxed or agnostic. And then you read something and it kind of makes up your mind for you. You're, you're paid to do that for other people. <laughs> well, I was just so going to ma- say, that's. I try to spend my <laughs> life avoiding that exact thing happening. You know, coming out of a movie, not knowing what to say about it, and then getting an idea from someone else. That's why I never read reviews before I write my review. I'm basically fearing the unconscious influence. But yes, I understand the phenomenon of, and I hope have at times made this possible for people, that a work of criticism can form your ideas about it, a work of art, for sure. And in this instance, instance it really did. I came out of um, Hail Caesar having enjoyed the movie, but thinking it was somewhat a little pointless, even though it invokes a lot of large ideas. And then I read an essay on BuzzFeed by a woman named Anne Helen Peterson, how the Coens tricked you into thinking Hail Caesar is about nothing. I thought it was so beautifully argued that it did make me think, if nothing else, the Coens were completely in control of the parts of it that seemed on first viewing maybe to be unresolved. They're not at all. Now, whether or not you can be made to care about a movie by approaching it this intellectually, I'm not sure, but I was kind of convinced in a weird way that there's her argument and I won't go into it it's it's subtle it's interesting and it's 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 sort of beautifully spun out but quickly it's just that they're they're exploring these four utopian moments in these four movies that we're seeing the behind the scenes of and then showing you kind of this anti-utopian reality behind them but they're also in their own film resisting this delivery of utopia that Hollywood, especially in the 50s, really specialized in. That seems overwrought in a way, but I actually think she's really onto something. And it took a movie that I enjoyed but couldn't quite piece together in my head in some satisfying way. Dana, it does seem to me that the Coen brothers are filmmakers who sometimes need a, um, you know, decoder ring in order to make sense of what they're trying to do, which is perhaps why you resist them a little bit. Yeah, I think if there's anything I resist in the Coens, it's not so much that it's too coded and impenetrable. It's more that there's this surface perfection that, that is so highly worked and highly wrought that it's hard for you know anything really forceful, emotionally forceful to emerge from beneath it. I do think that, that has been, there's been a countervailing force to that in a lot of their recent work. But to me, Hell Caesar is not really included in that, as we discussed last week. But I love Anne Helen Peterson's writing, and I'm very curious to read what she writes about the movie. And I want to see that movie again, partly for this the sheer mm-hmm. visual and oral pleasure that it provides, but also to see if I understood it or not. Yeah. Uh, and I want to emphasize that I'm really endorsing this essay as much as anything. Um, I wasn't familiar, shame on me, with Anne Helen Peterson's work. She's, oh, we need to have her on yeah. the show. She's the best. She's, she's fantastic. Terrific. Particularly she's, she's on terrific. kind of... Hollywood history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she's marvelous. And um, and oh, it's just a great discovery. So that's really my endorsement. Anne Helen Peterson, I'm endorsing you. Okay, um, that's our show. Forrest, thank you so much for coming on and, um, and filling in for Julia. Thanks for having me. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Stand when he walks in the room. Trust me, um, the Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. And check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. It is quite impressive and all of them are good. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Forrest Wickman and Dana Stevens and Carl Wilson. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Well, I'm standing in the jungle. I'm trying to give a date.